Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, April 18th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill continues the history of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, Disney's own government entity in Central Florida. Let's get started by bringing in the man who reminds you that today you can walk into a store and buy a birthday cake just for yourself because nobody checks. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, by the way, Len, this past weekend, my very sweet sister-in-law, Kathy, held a belated birthday party for me. Well, Kathy asked me what my favorite cake was because she wanted to make it for the Sunday's party. And I said, Boston cream pie, which is actually a cake that was invented by the culinary staff of the Parker House Hotel in Boston back in 1856. Wait, the Parker House of the famous Parker House Rolls? There we go. What? By the way, it has since been declared the official state dessert of Massachusetts, beating out the chocolate chip cookie and the Fig Newton. It's a huge pain in the ass to make and then serve mm. because the top layer always slides off of the middle layer of cluster. Exactly. Yeah. But a little slice of heaven in your mouth, well worth the type 2 diabetes you immediately get after <laughs> eating this thing. You're shooting yourself up as you're eating. There the we go. It's I, fine. Everything's fine. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's my birthday. Just there we go. go. <laughs> but yeah, Kathy was very sweet to make that. So. Oh, very nice. Thank yeah. you, Kathy. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Connie P, Dave Z78, and Figment1313. And longtime subscribers, Zotch, McCat1995, and Aurora3000. Jim, these are the folks buying up all the Red Delicious and Granny Smiths they can find so that Artist Point can serve Snow White's poisoned apple for dessert each night. They say their job is super easy, though, compared to the team that has to make the dessert known as the Huntsman's Gift to the Queen. <sighs> True story. Jim, you know what the Huntsman, Huntsman's Gift to the Queen was, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> Tell me why. The, it's, a, it's a pig's heart. Why is it on the menu, Jim? Why is it on the menu? There's no one, does no one read the book. Has <laughs> no one seen this film? <laughs> Didn't we just recently have somebody actually planted a pig's heart in somebody's chest and kept them alive for three and four months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, aren't there better places to use the pig's heart? I'm just saying, you know. If you talk about supply chain difficulties, this story never comes up. And I'm glad we're illuminating it here, Jim. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. So a couple of uh, quick things, uh, Jim, you and I are doing our first ever Disney Dish Cruise. Mm -hmm. It is September 23rd to the 26th, already sold out. But we do have two other events that we're doing. Uh, the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World, which starts Friday, December 2nd, and uh, March 30th through April 1st for our group cruise on the Star Cruiser Halcyon. It's a Thursday check-in and a Saturday checkout, which is also somehow appropriately April Fool's Day. The sign-up for both of those events is storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. And I've verified that those uh, forms are working for both those two things. So if you guys have, uh, are interested in doing our Gingerbread Challenge or the Star Cruiser event in 2023, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. I don't know if you saw the image on Twitter today about the gentleman who seems to have, have won the costume competition on uh, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. No. What is he What is he dressed as? He went as Han Solo in, embedded in carbonite. He was literally... 
did he really? So you can see the little feet I mean, sticking huge out. Pain. Yeah. yeah, huge pain. Did, did it was it like like a sandwich board type thing? Or just- uh, when it, it looked like he was wearing a mattress. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> It was just one of these things where it's like, going to be interesting come dinner, but okay, you know. <laughs> that is fantastic. And again, I love the creativity that people are coming up with this. I know the uh, the cast is, uh, is enjoying, the crew is enjoying it as well. True, true. All right, uh, Jim, speaking of uh, events, uh, DVC and AP previews for Guardians of the Galaxy start May 8th. That email went out today, the day that we're mm-hmm. recording this on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to to what people actually have to say about this storytelling coaster. Yeah, it's going to be uh, really interesting. Uh, and it looks like uh, Disney's website is holding up pretty well. I note uh, my friend Derek Bergen mm-hmm. was uh, was managed to be 56,000th in line, I think, <laughs> on the website for previews. So, yeah, things are going great over there. I, I think Nancy was mentioning 11,600th in line at one point. And sort of like, well, okay, you know, I, I think I have time to get myself a sandwich. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. I, uh, I'll i be doing the previews around then. So the next episode we record after that, we'll have all of the details mm-hmm. about Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, thanks to our friends over at WDWMagic.com. We've seen the initial construction footprint for the Polynesian DVC. So, Jim, I've uh, put the this image in the show notes for you. The thing that jumped out to me mm-hmm. here is that the building itself is way closer to the Fiji and Aotearoa rooms than I expected. What about you? That coupled with the complete lack of monorail access. Right. I mean, the positioning right down by the water. And so folks who have the Seven Seas Lagoon view will have a primo view of the electric water pageant every night. Right. But beyond that... Also, did you notice the orientation of the building, which sort of looks like a... Uh, a semi-straightened S, mm-hmm. the orientation of the building doesn't face the Magic Kingdom. It actually faces more towards the contemporary and the Polynesian itself. I wonder if that's so that the views from the Hawaii buildings aren't cannibalized by these sales. That's definitely in play. I've also heard that the Disney Wedding Pavilion also had to be taken into consideration as they were right, working. Right, right working on these plans because that's a huge revenue stream for the company. And it's just sort of like, as much as we want a brand new DVC, we also don't want to disturb the eight to 10 weddings a day that go on inside of that structure. Well, that was the other thing that surprised me about the layout was Mm -hmm. that none of the wedding pavilion parking was sacrificed for the poly DVC, which tells you how much money there must be in wedding pavilion sales. To not, I mean, you could have put the parking lot across the street from World Drive mm-hmm. and had only minor inconvenience, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that they didn't do that, mm-hmm. not even a little bit, not even those like those, you know, 30 or 40 spots mm-hmm. closest to the poly. I mean, those were sacrosanct in this. That tells you how much money that uh, wedding pavilion is generating. Given how those weddings are stacked each day, the notion that you go park in that parking lot, you go park in that parking lot. Yeah, go, that wouldn't that wasn't going to cut it. Yeah. No, no, no. It, you know, when you you're trying to clear one wedding out and bring the other wedding in, you can't afford to lose a single parking space. So this was Disney's equivalent of you know, piece of the True Cross. It's like we're not touching that. All right, you can yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the wedding pavilion, my. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my question here is mm. how they're going to schedule 
any of the potential noisy parts of the construction to coordinate around the weddings. Because if you look at where the the far end of the building, it is yards yeah. from the wedding pavilion. I mean, it's I mean, I could I, I don't have a great arm. I could throw a rock mm-hmm. from one end of the the proposed building to the wedding pavilion, right? How are they going to manage uh, construction noise with the weddings? It's 15 months of, hey, can we pay for your flowers? Can, can we upgrade your rooms? Yeah. A lot of people book these things months, if not years in advance. And yeah, they're so, already booked. Yeah. yeah. So it, the, the make good fairy is going to show up at the uh, Disney weddings office. And all right, how can we make this right? And uh, you know there's got to be someone on the construction team mm-hmm. whose sole job is to look for anyone in a tuxedo near the wedding pavilion and then shut down all of the noisy construction while that happens, right? Like just during the ceremony, there will be no construction. There's a fascinating show business history story that sort of delves into this very same thing. The Marriott Marquis was being constructed in Times Square in in 1970. And at this very same time, Alan J. Lerner is doing a musical in New York called Coco, which starred Catherine Hepburn as Coco Chanel. And the problem is Catherine Hepburn didn't have the greatest singing voice to begin with. And, but in the second act, she had a big number that oddly enough was called Coco and she's on stage by herself singing this thing. And, and they're building the Marriott Marquis across the street and you would hear the construction noise in the theater. And, and I guess a week or two into the runner show, Catherine Hepburn goes over to the construction site at the Marriott Marquis and basically gets the foreman in charge of construction. Look, look, can we cut a deal? I do a Wednesday matinee at 3.20 in the afternoon. I start singing this song. Is there any way at 3.20 in the afternoon you guys can stop construction for five minutes? And, you know, and the thing is, it was Catherine Hepburn's force of personality. Oh, sure. She actually got them to agree to do it. So it's like, you know, literally 3.05, you know, the word would go out in the on a Wednesday, okay, get ready, guys, shut it down for five minutes. And then you yeah. had hundreds of construction workers just sort of standing around waiting for Catherine Heffers to finish her song. So you know, they're all humming the song in the background, <laughs> like, okay, if, if Catherine takes a little bit longer here, how long? <laughs> there we go. But you've you got, got to wonder if, if there will be the equivalent. Guaranteed. And if Disney hasn't thought of it by the time the show comes out and somebody's heard it, yep. it will be a thing. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Okay, yeah. got it, got it. Um, by the way, Jim, did you notice the um, two other things in that drawing? One, a new proposed pool at the yeah. poly and a new proposed water activity area as well. So do you suppose that this will be a pool that will be shared by the two resorts? or uh, You know, the uh, the current DVC pool at the poly is not shared. It's gated entry with a lock. Mm. So I'm going with no on that. Okay. Although it really is the backside of Fiji. I was about by to Tuvalu say. And Aotearoa. Yeah. <sighs> There's a little bit of haves and have nots there, isn't there? I agree. Oh, and that would make that would make two of the three pools in the poly DVC, wouldn't it? Uh, that's <sighs> touchy, touchy. Stuff. All right, we'll see how that develops. Okay. Got to keep an eye on that. All right. And again, thanks to everyone over at wdwmagic.com mm. who uh, found that uh, that site plan. Uh, Jim, staying within the Magic Kingdom monorail loop, we also note that Narcusi's, the restaurant over at the Grand Floridian, has closed for a lengthy refurbishment. I actually like Narcusi's quite a bit, but I will say that if you walk inside it, uh, as mm. Laurel and I have done many times, one of her first observations is, hey, it's the 1980s all over again. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Which the decor is something out of like Tommy Wahama's nineteen eighty five catalog, but that being said, the food is excellent. You think they're going to uh, change the decor? They would almost have to, but I guess the thing for me is Narcusi's is the one that's really, really to the back of the flow, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's all the way back by the marina, yeah, yeah, and you have to work backwards, right? I mean, its strengths are it offers you potentially a view of the kingdom, it offers you mm-hmm. a view of the nighttime water pageant, yeah. I'm thinking Disney's thinking that this is underutilized and that's, yeah. uh, this is part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. do you do? I mean, I, we have seen at the grand flow, we've seen the beast library bar retheme. The Mary Poppins inization of Citricos. That was go. really light though. I mean, unless you're really looking for that, you wouldn't know it's there. Oh, I, I, I get that. But with those two precedents, what are you doing back here? What IP? And again, if we're going with the whole underutilized thinking on this restaurant, what are you doing to drive people that deep into property? So Beauty and the Beast was uh, was French. Mm-hmm. Mary Poppins is British. This mm-hmm. is, of course, a classic early 1900s Florida resort. Mm-hmm. So I'm going with something German. <laughs> <laughs> Rapunzel. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, uh, speaking of the Grand Floridian, mm-hmm. uh, rumor has it that the Michelin Guide's review of VNA will be uh, 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 late summer 2022. So, Ooh. not that I have any context over at the guide, but mm-hmm. you know. Okay, going to be interesting to see what happens there. So, the fact that they've got that scheduled probably means that we'll open earlier, much earlier than that. I don't think the the Michelin guide is going to be there on night number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still, I'm still thinking like early to midsummer opening for V&A. Wasn't there word that Victoria and Albert's is finally reopening as well, or? It hasn't been official, but now let's talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we did, uh, I think we, did we talk about it in the last show that there were, they were hiring? We've talked about the canary in the coal mine. When yeah, does. Which the- is Israel, when Israel leaves Citricos, that's how we know that, that V&A's uh, opening is imminent, right? There we go. So. Yeah. That guy's amazing. He's like, he's like eight or nine points in a, uh, in a customer satisfaction survey all by himself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a taskmaster from what I, uh, from what I understand, but Mm -hmm. he gets results and he really likes what he does. So can't, uh, can't argue with that. Right. Oh, you can. So I like, I like the guy personally. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, one, uh, one last thing for the news. Uh, Disney's announced plans for affordable housing, 80 acres over near Flamingo Crossings. And you pointed out that this comes on the heels of Universal making a similar announcement. Yes. And, you know, but again, that was last year. And, you mm. know, and Disney's had a, a run of tough press lately. And so something like this that might make people in Central Florida think kindly of them. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a, an on-the-nose deliberate piece of timing, but but we'll take yeah. it, you know, especially given how tough things are housing in Central Florida. In fact, uh, yeah. just this morning, Good Morning America did a story about what's happened just over the past year with, with rent prices. Apartment, apartment rents are up, what, 20, 25% in Orlando? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, na- nationally, there's up 17%. So, yeah. uh, so, I mean, uh, just the fact that Florida is outpacing the rest of the country by that wide a margin, we definitely need more inventory, especially around Disney. Yeah, definitely. So that's uh, that is good news. So yep. I'm excited to see what they uh, what they end up doing there. Absolutely. All right, Jim. Um, uh, for our survey section, we've got a lot of surveys in the past week. Uh, I need a little bit more time to sort through all of them. There is one I want to point out though from our listener Catherine about her experience at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And Jim, 
this entire survey is just full of questions along the lines of, give it to me straight, how bad is it from Disney? And so we're going to talk about that on next week's show. Okay. Okay. We do have a couple of listener questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's one from Diane. He says, uh, my kids and I love to start the school week listening to Schmurz Day. Thank you. We're curious about the fate of Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom. We really miss this attraction, and we're wondering if there are plans to bring it or something similar back to Magic Kingdom. My kids had a great idea about how to update it in Kanto style. They think we should have to find pieces of Bruno's visions around the uh, various lands. Anyway, we're just wondering if you know anything. Thanks. So I don't think the idea is of of interactive elements is Hmm. dead within Disney. In fact, I, I think the exact opposite. I think they're, uh, they're looking for anything here that can add capacity without uh, uh, involving a $300 million infrastructure build. Absolutely. But one of the things that directly led to the shutdown of Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom was, I mean, think about when people used to queue up for it. There would be the one person playing in front of the window with their cards, and then right. there would be the three and four other individuals who were standing you know, at least three and four, sometimes 10 or 15, waiting for their turn. And the problem is that it's just, particularly in a pandemic, it's like, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, standing around, yeah, not, yeah. Yeah, so notice that if you walk through the parks, the sources of the Magic Kingdom, it's not that they pulled them out, they're still there. Every one of them is still mm-hmm. there. It's just this whole notion of legal says, hold on that. That looks like a Petri dish with feet. Right. And because you still have to hand out the cards, someone has to do it, right? There are staffing issues. There's maintenance issues, right? It's it's one of those things where if it's a thousand people an hour, mm-hmm. which by the way, a thousand people an hour is roughly Peter Pan, yeah. right? In terms of capacity, mm-hmm. you know, they're probably looking at saying, this is not something that we can afford to do right now. No, no. But I, I don't think the idea is dead. No, but on the other hand, you know, I would imagine that there's somebody in the Team Disney Orlando building. It's like, tell me more of this Encanto idea you have. <laughs> exactly. All right. Here's an email from Matthew. He says, uh, I just got this email from a local Orlando employment agency. I'm not totally caught up on the podcast, but I believe you've talked about this happening. I love the show. And the uh, the ad is for something called Remote Capture Operator and Jim, I know what you're thinking, but this is not whaling. Damn it! All right, it says, <laughs> I was it says, polishing my harpoon. All right, please, <laughs> please continue. All right, it says a large theme park is hiring for a remote capture operator. In this role, you'll be responsible for taking photos during character meet and greets. You'll be working on site at the office, but you'll be taking pictures remotely via an automatic camera capture machine of the guest slash characters in the theme park. You don't need any actual photography experience as you will just be, quote, clicking a button and will receive two days of training on how to operate the machine, et cetera. It actually says et cetera Mm -hmm. in the job posting, which I think is a little bit weird, but okay. Okay. The position summary is this. The support position will primarily be responsible for the manual operation of proprietary photo capture software during the development of the new photo systems. So new photo systems. Mm -hmm. The operator will be logged in real-time video to a guest-facing area and provide immediate input to the system based on guest and cast behavior to capture the interactions. Operator will use a select number of keystroke inputs to capture photos at the correct moment. Okay, so Jim, it sounds like instead of having PhotoPass photographers at every single spot, mm-hmm. they're going to have them centrally located. So if there's more demand in one place, they can just switch screens and, and go to uh, the other one. Here's the interesting thing that I think. Um, mm-hmm. Required quali- qualifications. 
Demonstrated computer proficiency to learn new programs and processes quickly in an ever-changing, fast-paced environment. You kind of figured that. Mm-hmm. Ability to work at a computer for the entire length of a shift. You kind of figured that. Mm-hmm. Ability to do repetitive work, remain focused, and deliver an exceptional level of accuracy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, ability to work in a professional open office environment without distraction over an entire shift. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Desired qualifications. Jim, these are the two that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Experience using Microsoft Excel. Now, I have said on this podcast that Microsoft Excel is the single greatest computer program ever written. And I honestly believe that, mm-hmm. right? The, and Excel can do anything. I didn't know that it could control cameras. I am not surprised. The, the second thing, though, is previous experience testing game-based software. Ooh. And I get if they had said previous experience testing software, mm-hmm. I would have got that. Why game-based software? That is an interesting piece of language. Now, I was more intrigued by the use of the term photos as opposed to photo. Oh, they take multiple photos. Well, no, that's it. Exactly. You know, in fact, it's part of the two day training. I'm told, for example, that the folks who who work in character meet and greets, they're actually encouraged to capture no less than five different images. Sure. I mean, I mean, the cost of capturing images two through five, Jim, is essentially zero, right? Mm, oh, absolutely. But, you know, in fact, I think what's intriguing about the, the Microsoft Excel, I would bet you there's literally, okay, did you capture the the initial oh, greeting? Think there's a column, this set of columns like, yes, did you get no, the front view? Did you get the side view? Yeah. Did, did, uh, okay, possibly. So they're just going to have a spreadsheet that says... Yeah, and you got your goodbye. Okay, move them into the gift shop. Thank you. You know, uh, so, but yeah, game-based software. Um, if there's there's anyone out, out there, uh, you know, yeah, our, our pals in the- super interested in it. Yeah, yeah. What, why that specific piece of language? Also, the fact that it's a new photo system yeah. is interesting too. So this is uh, this is new development. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm, uh, I'm especially interested in the Excel thing, though. So for the computer scientists out there, mm-hmm. we all know that Excel is t- Turing complete. This will make it codec complete. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, we're, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues his talk about the history of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. We'll be right back. Hey, we got any fans of Finding Your Roots out there? Nancy and I absolutely love that PBS program, as does my mom. In fact, when we were down at my mother's place the other day, as the three of us were all talking about how much we enjoyed the job that Henry Louis Gates Jr. does as he hosts that show, my mom got started talking about my own family's genealogy, which can be traced back some 17 generations. And as part of this conversation, my mother revealed that the Hills are somehow related to the Colgates, the maker of the soap and the founders of that university. I had never heard that before which got me thinking, what other stories has my mom yet to share with me? That's why I'm thinking I really need to get my mother's StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and that preserves those stories and memories for years yet to come. And how does StoryWorth do that, you ask? Well, StoryWorth emails your mom a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions that you've never thought to ask before. Things like some of the best advice your mom gave you. Or if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of those questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book, which the whole family can then share for generations. 
I can picture that book right in the middle of the coffee table at my mom's house. Something to show the grandchildren and my mom's very first great-grandchild, who will be arriving shortly and will be a great gift in and of itself. Speaking of gifts, why not give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift that you'll both cherish for years? StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash Disney Dish. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. Again, storyworth.com slash Disney Dish. We thank StoryWorth for sponsoring today's podcast. This time of year, there's just too many temptations close at hand, like that basket of leftover Easter candy in the break room, which makes it tough for those of us who are just trying to eat better, especially at the start of the day, cut down our sugar and carbs, lay off to all those unhealthy breakfast options, only to then realize there's nothing fun left to eat. But a healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors that you love, but without all of the bad stuff. By that I mean Magic Spoon has 0 grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving. It's also keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb, plus Magic Spoon is only 140 calories a serving. And did I mention you can build your own Magic Spoon box? If you'd like to create your own custom bundle, available flavors are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, cookies and cream, maple waffle, blueberry, cinnamon, plus their newly reformulated honey nut flavor. That flavor was so delicious that Magic Spoon made it a part of their permanent collection. Uh, Magic Spoon is a great way to start your day. But this healthy yet delicious cereal is also perfect for a guiltless midnight snack. Look, if you'd like to create your own custom bundle of cereal, go to magicspoon.com slash Disney Dish. Be sure to use promo code Disney Dish at checkout to save $5 off your order. Mind you, Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee, which means if you don't like the cereal for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Disney Dish and use the code Disney Dish to save $5 off. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring today's episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, in last week's episode, we started talking about why Disney wanted something like the Reedy Creek Improvement District. And before we continue the story, I want to thank all of the actual lawyers who wrote in to say they were, uh, let's say, entertained by my idea that although the Reedy Creek Improvement District Charter says that it'll have, and I quote, perpetual existence, that doesn't mean it'll exist forever. The primary reason, if I understand correctly, is that uh, the legislature of today can't bind future legislatures that way. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, I'm also happy to say that a couple of our listeners who are actual attorneys who can practice in Florida mm-hmm. have agreed to take a look at the RCD charter and we'll have their analysis on an upcoming show. So we'll look forward mm, to that. Can't wait. Okay. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So Jim, uh, where do we leave off with part one? We left off with the news that 
here in November of uh, 1965. Here's Walt down in Florida. He meets with both the press, but more importantly, before that, he meets with 750 of the top legislators in the state of Florida, likewise business mm-hmm. leaders. And it, I want to say it's, it's Governor Hayden Burns who assures Walt that, you know, we are here to help smooth the path. And, you know, we understand there's some legislative hurdles and all that. But at tail end of 65, we also get word that the Walt Disney Company has just been granted by the National Forest Service the opportunity to develop a ski area in the High Sierras, the the Mineral King. And so suddenly Florida has competition. What had seemed like a sure thing, I mean, Disney bought all of this land, but Disney is also talking about it also could be a wonderful real estate transaction. We don't actually have to build the resort to turn the profit here. In 66, just a few months prior to his death, Walt Disney is named a showman for the world by NATO. Even Belgium? (laughs) I I don't know if they're part of NATO. I'm assuming they are. Okay. By the way, we are not talking about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but rather the National Association of Theater Owners. (laughs) Does NATO actually give out awards, the, the North Atlantic Treaty? <laughs> that would be hysterical I, if they did. Be. You know, the, you're the cutest little country. Oh, my God. You know, so. All right. Anyway, so as, as Walt's putting in an appearance at NATO's uh, annual convention. <laughs> it's not going to be funny for the entire show. I, I'm just going to laugh when no, you say it. No, no. That's why I included it. Uh, anyway, uh, Walt has asked, why didn't you make a sequel to your studio's biggest hit? Which, of course, at that time is Mary Poppins, which had been released to theaters in August of 64. Now. You've probably heard some select quotes from Walt's response to this question in the past. Disney employees have a habit of cherry picking particular quotes to help support whatever project they're working on at the time. Whereas what follows is Walt's entire response, which which gives you some idea of what direction the Walt Disney production was actually headed in just prior to Walt's untimely death in uh, December of 66. So many people have asked, why don't you make another Mary Poppins? Well, by nature, I'm a born experimenter. To this day, I don't believe in sequels. I can't follow popular cycles. I have to, on, to move on to new things. There are many new worlds to conquer. Uh, in fact... People have been asking us to make sequels ever since Mickey Mouse first became a star. We vowed only on one occasion to the cry of, to repeat ourselves back in the 30s. Three Little Pigs was an enormous hit, and the cry went up, give us more pigs. Hmm. I could not say how we could possibly top pigs with pigs, but we tried, and I, I doubt that any of you can name the other cartoons that the pigs appeared in. We didn't make the same mistake with Snow White when it became a huge hit. The shout went up for more dwarves, top dwarves with dwarves. Why try? Right now, we're not we're not thinking of making another Mary Poppins. We never will. Perhaps there will be other ventures with equal, critical, and financial success. But we know we cannot hit a home run with the bases loaded every time we go to the plate. We also know that the only way we can even get to first base is by constantly going to bat and continuing to swing. We're always looking for new ideas and new stories, hoping that somehow we'll come up with a different kind of Mary Poppins or even a different kind of Disneyland. As 1967 begins, we have high hopes that some of our current projects may measure up to this exciting challenge. 
Maybe it'll be a motion picture like The Happiest Millionaire. Maybe it will be our so-called Disney World in Florida. Or maybe it will be our year-round recreation facility in the high Sierras of California, Mineral King. By the way, Len, I love that Walt describes Project Florida as our so-called Disney World. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> As in, seriously, that's the best name you can come up yeah, with. This is what we're coming up with here. This this is the this is the sum total of our creative powers. There we All go. Right. <laughs> I, I guess it is kind of catchy. It might stick. It might stick. Who knows? But, but again, look at this. Look at how Walt is describing Mineral King, our year-round recreation facility in the high Sierras of California. Care to guess which one Walt is most excited about? Our so-called Disney World or our year-round recreation facility in the high Sierras of California? So... <laughs> Kind of, kind of amazing. All right. So anyway, last week's edition, again, we talked about the, the, the press conference at the Cherry Tree Plaza Hotel. As Walt's talking to those politicians, talking to the guys at the press, he says, eh, okay, based on preliminary estimates that the wet is done, it's going to take a, at least a year and a half to design the Vacation Kingdom portion of Disney World, and then another year and a half to actually build the thing. This is revealed in November of 65. And since that time, Florida politicians and business leaders have been patiently waiting on word about what Walt's so-called Disney World would entail. But as 66 draws to a close, word came out of California that Walt Disney Productions was finally ready to reveal exactly what they were going to build out on those uh, 27,443 acres of the company had acquired in the swamps of Central Florida. And so here's the crucial part of the announcement. Preliminary plans for Walt Disney World and a review of local legislation necessary to make this project a reality will be revealed in a public hearing called by the Central Florida Legislative Delegation during the first week of February 1967. Mm, okay. uh, which isn't to say that, you know, all the Imagineers are back in, in Glendale designing Disney World's Vacation Kingdom. There wasn't any work going on on site at those 47,443 acres. Uh, in fact, there were huge pieces of earthworking equipment out there moving under the guidance of General Joe Potter, a.k.a. Uh, William Everett Potter. Walt had first met General Joe when he was working with Robert Moses on the 64-65 New York World's Fair. So he, Wait, so hold on. So we only knew him a couple of years at this? Point? See, this is the thing. People always get confused about there's General Joe Potter and there's Admiral Joe Fowler. Now, Admiral Joe is the World War II vet who was building a housing division, a subdivision up in, in Northern California when Walt said, hey, can you come down for a couple of days? We're doing this thing in an orange grove in Anaheim and would just like your thoughts and effectively trapped him to make Disneyland. Whereas Potter, on the other hand, here's Walt, you know, introduced to him by Robert Moses, and Walt learns that Mr. Potter had supervised the Army Corps of Engineers as they tackled the $100 million project to control the Missouri River. And then after that, General Joe takes on a work assignment, a five-year stint as the governor of the Panama Canal Zone. Wow. So think about this. You're Walt, and you hear about his work experience when it comes to these genuinely massive water control projects. And Walt quietly pulls Potter aside and is like, have I got a job for you? <laughs> I mean, not for nothing, the Panama Canal. <laughs> no, that's an example. Right. This, is, this isn't like, uh, you know, I've done some pool construction. <laughs> yeah, you know, this, 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 
<laughs> I hung the gutter on the front of the house. I mean, oh, I, I, I got lots of experience. Okay, so anyway, wow. All right. throughout 66, uh, General Joe and his team began wrestling with the swamps of Central Florida with the end goal getting this twice the size of the island of Manhattan wetland ready for construction. Now, before Potter can begin working on site, Disney, with the help of state and county officials in Florida, forms the Reedy Creek Drainage District. And the purpose of the, the Reedy Creek Drainage District, it's a legal entity that then made it possible for the company to begin reclaiming and preparing all of the property it had acquired on the sly in 64 and 65 for subsequent development. Oh, so this would be the company that filed all the permits. There we go. Because they had used, they had used what, dozens if not hundreds of fictitious companies to buy the land, but then they needed a, an overarching one. That's it, exactly. Some, to uh, do all the work. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Now, Potter has a lot of plates to spin as he begins working on this project. First and foremost, there is the fact that the headwaters of the Everglades actually start in the Orlando area and then flow through the Kissimmee chain of lakes, of which Bay Lake at Walt Disney World is one of the key bodies of water in this ecosystem. So Joel has to make sure that no matter what he does on property, water has to continue to flow from Bay Lake down toward the Everglades. Yes, that would be a problem if not. <laughs> okay. But at the same time, he has to keep the water table at select sites around Disney World low so they can then support construction of the Vacation Kingdom. This means Walt Disney production has to crisscross, again, those 27,443 acres of land in Central Florida with miles and miles of drainage canals, which Walt, not entirely affectionately, begins to refer to as Joe's Ditches. I mean, not for nothing, but uh, the land that they're using to create, the dirt that they're using to create the canals mm -hmm. would also be needed to provide solid firmament for the buildings that they're about to construct too, right? So it's a it's a... It, uh, there are two benefits to digging the canals. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, man, with, this is amazing. The amount of, uh, you, you think you would just, you know, start, start digging ditches, but no, mm. when you have to, when you have to take into account the fact that, you know, runoff in central Florida eventually makes it its way down to the Everglades mm -hmm. and you can't impact that, mm -hmm. that's a huge challenge. Oh, yeah. And remember, we talked about this is the guy who's, who's working to water control with the Missouri. This is the guy in charge of the Panama Canal. But he's never dealt with a Walt Disney before. And as uh, Admiral Joe Fowler recalled in an interview in the, the late 1980s, the first canal Joe Potter laid out ran straight as an arrow from Bay Lake to the south part of property. And I was with <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and again, you know, Panama I mean, Canal. Panama I mean, not for nothing, but yeah. you, you know, it's it's the it's the direct way. It's it's see the problem, solve the problem. I kind of get it. Okay, and but here's All the right. thing. All right, so th th this is Admiral Joe, Joe Fowler with Walt when he first sees it, and Walt doesn't raise his voice. The only way you could tell he was angry because he raised his right eyebrow when he raised it and said, "Look, Joe, I don't want any of any more of those." Corps of Engineer Canals, you know, and so from this point forward, at much greater expense, General Joe Potter is digging canals on property that are deliberately laid out in a meandering pattern to resemble natural rivers. But at the same time, it's an amazing state-of-the-art water control system. So, for example, when Central Florida experiences a, a heavy rainstorm, 
So there's a system of automatic gates that open and close. Uh, they prevent key portions of the property, especially uh, those areas designated to construction sites for the theme park, the golf courses, and the hotel from flooding. But officials from Walt Disney Productions keep describing these you know, 2,473, uh, 733 acres that they acquired in 64-65 is a major and important real estate acquisition. A chunk of property that has significantly increased in value since Disney acquired it. So with all the time and all the money, the Walt Disney Production is plowing into the, the creation of all these canals, crisscrossing Central Florida Swamp doesn't actually mean that they're going to go forward with construction of, well, all right, here's the language, Len, that the, the Pierre Flax in 66 used in the company's annual report. They described Disney World as a recreation and entertainment complex whose impact on the quality of urban life will be measured for generations to come. So you know, no pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Mind you, the whole time Disney officials are meeting with, with folks who are high up in the legislative branches of the state of Florida as they plan out the roads, the off-ramps, the interchanges that will provide access to the more than 6 million visitors who are expected to come flooding into Central Florida during Disney World's first year of operation. But they're saying things during these negotiations like, well, Walt isn't completely committed to building Disney World. I mean, he likes Project Florida, and, he, and he's very, but he's very excited about that ski area. The, the company's looking to build up in the High Sierra, and, and the Department of Interior and the state of California are really eager to work with Walt and Mineral King. They're, they're talking about funding construction of all weather road that'll take guests straight to property. So the very unsubtle message here is, if you really want us to build this vacation kingdom in the swamps of Florida, the state and federal government are going to have to cover the cost of construction of all these roads, off-ramps, and interchanges to get people to Disney World. And the whole year of 1966, Disney company officials working closely with state and county officials trying to, to identify key legal issues that will serve as roadblocks to Project Florida, with the idea here being February of 67, Walt Disney Productions would present its plans for the vacation kingdom, and then in the months that followed, the Florida legislature would have to vote on a bill or a package of bills that would then clear the path for what was then supposed to be a $100 million project. Hundred million dollars. <laughs> well, again, that's it. That's what's adorable about reading this early. You know, the, oh, a hundred million. Hundred million dollars. Yeah. So. <laughs> or you know, twenty percent of Guardians of the Galaxy. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the folks in Orange County uh, or Osceola County, or for that matter, the officials up in Tallahassee would start to complain about the terms and conditions that Disney execs were laying out. And, you know, this supposedly family-friendly mouse was playing hardball. The Disney officials would drop disturbing little bits of, of info, you know, back to the effect of California Governor Ronald Reagan had already gone on record saying that he supports a Mineral King project and that he hopes construction of this year-round recreation facility in the High Sierras goes forward. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the National Park Service had just given its okay to construct an all weather road through a previously preserved section of sequoias. Yeah, I remember this was a uh, this was a uh, a, con a point of contention with Disney because like, they needed easier access for people to get to Mineral King. Absolutely, right? and it was a big point of contention with the Sierra Club, which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, this is a high stakes game of poker that the state of Florida found itself in, and if it really wanted to come out on top here. 
uh, have Walt Disney Production move forward with installing, uh, we'll be on just installing drainage canals, not just theme parks, not just the hotel, but a recreation and entertainment complex whose impact would, you know, the quality of urban life would be measured for generations. It's like they had to put up. Yeah. And to add even further pressure to the entire situation, December 15th, 1966, Walt Disney dies suddenly. And mm. for a brief window of time, everybody holds their breath as there were rumors that Roy O. Disney is considering selling the entire operation off to RCA. <sighs> Was that, was that true? Did he really actually consider it or was it just a rumor? Roy went into profound mourning. I mean, he effectively right. stepped away from the company for three to six months, depending on who you're talking to. And in okay. the very companies that Disney had been dealing with, I mean, remember, you know, Disney is on the Wonderful World of Colors being broadcast on NBC, which in turn NBC, is right. owned by RCA. So if there's ever a corporation on the planet that understands the value, the worth of Disney, it's RCA. And it's just sort of like, ooh, Walt's gone. They're at a loss for the moment. So they began circling the company. I mean, it was kind of, you won't say, you know, it's not an Ivan Bosky Steinberg situation, but yeah. Right. It's know. a hostile takeover. It's like a, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got it. but they're, they're definitely kicking the tires. They were our overtures. So I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll get to that part of the story as well as the actual Reedy Creek Improvement District legislation in the next installment of the series. But uh, before we close here, Len, if you want to learn more about Mineral King, Daniel P. Selmy has written a book about this never-built project. Dawn at Mineral King Valley, the Sierra Club, the Disney Company, and the Riots of Environmental Law. Uh, this 344-page hardcover being published later this year by the University of Chicago Press, uh, in fact, on July 7th Ooh. of this year, and uh, available as a hardcover and uh, as a Kindle. But we've all been waiting for a, a, a book on this topic for, for decades at this point. So it's really great that Daniel put in the time and the effort to, to try to bring some clarity to all of these years and years of stories. I've just pre-ordered it on Amazon. There we go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know we've talked about uh, Mineral King before on the mm -hmm. show. We've done a couple podcasts on it. But mm -hmm. the thing that that I always remember about this is when I was going through the Buzz Price archives at mm -hmm. UCF, I found a handwritten note from Buzz himself, mm -hmm. a post-it note mm -hmm. on the Mineral King folder that mm -hmm. said, this was the greatest project we never built. Yeah. And that's why I'm excited about this book. It tells you so much about where the Walt Disney Productions thought you know, yeah, where uh, it was going, yeah. That, you know, they the division that was in charge of the theme parks was called outdoor recreation. Yeah, we have parks, but oh, wait till you see our ski area. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, looking forward to next week's episode, too. Likewise, cannot wait to hear what those lawyers <laughs> have to say. say. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we're going to continue this discussion of the Reed Creek Improvement District. You can find more of Jim at jimmyhillmedia.com and more of me, lennettouringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will attempt to become the world's fastest unicyclist. The current record is 17.93 miles per hour at the World Human Powered Speed Challenge with a first run at 7 a.m. on Saturday, September 17th, 2022 at the Black Mountain Tarmac, just across the street from the B Mountain Car Wash in beautiful downtown Black Mountain, Nevada. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. 
We will see you on the next show.